Good evening, everyone. My name is Andrew Fracknoy. I'm the Emeritus Chair of Astronomy here at Foothill College in Los Altos. And it's a pleasure for me to welcome everyone here in the Smithwick Theater and everyone watching us on the web to this program in the 19th annual Silicon Valley Astronomy Lectures. Um, this particular program on caves on Earth and elsewhere is part of a spring series on exciting developments about the exploration of the solar system. These programs are co-sponsored by the Foothill College Physical Science, Math, and Engineering Division, the NASA Ames Research Center, the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, and the SETI Institute, and we are grateful for their uh, support and assistance with making these wonderful outreach programs possible. Tonight, our speaker is Dr. Penelope Boston. Uh, she is currently the director of NASA's Astrobiology Institute, which is headquartered at Ames Research Center here in the San Francisco Bay Area. From 2002 to 2016, Dr. Boston served as the associate director of the National Cave and Karst Research Institute, and she was professor and chair of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology. Her research areas include geomicrobiology, an interdisciplinary field if we ever we heard one, and astrobiology in extreme environments. She's particularly interested in caves and mines, hot and cold deserts, high latitudes, and high altitudes, all places I try to avoid, but she actually enjoys. Um, she's very interested in processes creating caves on other worlds and in human life support issues in space and planetary environments. Particularly, she's investigated the use of robotics to assist exploration in extreme Earth and planetary environments. For her work, she received the 2010 Lifetime Science Achievement Award from the National Speleological Society, the Caving Le Legend Award from the Fort Stanton Cave Study Project, and she was elected fellow of the California Academy of Sciences. In addition to her important scientific work, Dr. Boston is a great believer in sharing the excitement of science with the public, which she's about to do tonight. Uh, here, then, to talk about the worlds under our feet, caves on Earth, Mars, and beyond, I'm proud to be able to present Dr. Penelope Boston. Well, I'm delighted to uh, have this opportunity to speak to you tonight, in spite of the rain. The rain outside is one of the great uh, gifts that we have here on Earth. And as we are uh, thinking about moving out into the solar system and beyond to uh, explore for life, we uh, constantly have water in mind, um, and we have an abundance of it on this planet, but it's in very different forms on other planets. So um, I want to talk about uh, the particular kinds of environments that I've worked in uh, and the prospect uh, for finding environments that are uh, at least similar in some ways uh, to those subsurface environments on other planets. 
I want to point out, actually, that this is a, an important year in space. Um, my own institute is experiencing its 20th anniversary. Uh, 20 years ago, NASA moved away from a very minor effort in the search for um, other life forms. In those days, we called it exobiology, and uh, created a program that was uh, much more um, uh, robust and uh, aggressive in pursuit of all of the sciences that go into trying to figure out how to find out if there, we have neighbors in our, in our galaxy and beyond. Um, this coming summer, of course, is the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, which was uh, a stunning achievement of technology. And building on those kinds of technologies, of course, are what we are continuing to do within NASA, a new push to go back to uh, the moon and to stay for real this time. Uh, bringing us out of our infancy in that regard, and then, of course, pushing on with uh, eventual human exploration of Mars. Um, NASA itself is having its 60th anniversary. It just passed a few months ago, and um, uh, NASA and I are about the same age. <laughs> so, so that would explain a lot of, of my career and my life. And in fact, our local center that uh, Andy talked about, uh, NASA Ames Research Center, even predates uh, NASA. It was a NACA facility, which is the organization that predated NASA, and it is having its 80th um, anniversary this year. So. Um, we live in an extraordinary time where we see all of these uh, many different components that go into uh, the kinds of work that we do at NASA and the kinds of work that I've been privileged to be able to do in my life. Um, so why do I go into big holes and look for microbial goo? This is um, probably not what you would say if you were interviewed when you were a kid and you were talking about what you might want to do for a living. And um, I didn't know I would go in that direction, but um, it was really the, uh, what we now call astrobiology that used to be called exobiology that uh, really was the impetus um, for my traveling the path that I have. Um, I wanted to be every kind of scientist when I was a little kid. I wanted to be an oceanographer, and I wanted to be a physicist, and I wanted to be an astronomer, and I wanted to be a biologist, and I wanted to be a veterinarian, and I wanted to be all sorts of things. And <clears throat> you just couldn't do that, except in astrobiology you can. <laughs> so that uh, was uh, incredibly compelling. I also, you know, a person with a, a short attention span, which um, your fourth grade teacher doesn't like about you, but which uh, you can actually parlay into a career strength, as long as you also have a long attention span um, in there somewhere. So uh, I love to work on multiple different things, but I work on them for 40 years, apparently, so far and counting. And then because, uh, you know, I'm the age I am, I'm a, the generation of children growing up in the 60s at the dawn of, of our space age, really, um, where we were in a Cold War situation and our country poured a lot of money into education in what we now call STEM fields. 
um, that produced an extraordinary crop of people and the legacy of people of my generation who benefited from that uh, geopolitical circumstance has uh, carried us through a great number of decades. And of course, we are now passing that on to our students and um, and other young folk who uh, will be carrying this on into the future because this is a really lifelong and multi-lifelong enterprise trying to study uh, life beyond our planet of origin. So we call it astrobiology now. Uh, and the official NASA take on this are these three fundamental questions. Now, there are many other questions that we have uh, for astrobiology, but these are the three biggies. How does life begin and evolve? And of course, you can see Charlie Darwin there, um, who uh, kicked off a lot of uh, thinking about that. Does life exist elsewhere in the universe is the second big question, and if so, how do we find it? And then, the third component really is something that doesn't always come to mind when you think of astrobiology, and this is, what is the future of life on Earth and beyond? Um, how does life uh, co-evolve with its planet? What happens to it over the many billions of years of the um, uh, duration of its star? We have to answer those questions for ourselves, uh, but also this is of general interest when we contemplate the phenomenon of life in general in the galaxy when we find it. So, I think uh, almost everybody is constantly now being exposed to the fact that we are covered in microbes, right? As we sit here, um, we think of each uh, other and ourselves as individuals with our uh, cognitive abilities, but the truth is that each one of us is an ecosystem that we are a compendium of uh, hundreds and thousands of individual microorganisms that live on us and in us, and uh, remnants of which are in our own human cells, and we function, each one of us, as this little mini-world. Well, it's not just us. It's also a lot of what we would think of originally as unlikely places. I'm not going to go through you know, a long discussion of each one of these. I could give an hour lecture on every single picture on this, on this slide, or, or maybe even more. <laughs> and I used to when I was a professor. Um, but even in all of these uh, not very biological settings, like nuclear uh, plant cooling uh, fluids and uh, metal corrosion and uh, in very salty environments and in uh, hydrothermal deep sea environments, we find microorganisms with an extraordinary array of talents that far exceed the chemical talents that uh, we experience with the ones that live on us and in us. Well, there's a very sad truth as yet, and I'm very unhappy about this because I'm getting older and I'm getting very much more impatient, and that is that we have not yet found any life beyond Earth, and I think it's time that we did. Um, we're trying very hard, but it's a very difficult thing to do. So the approach to this is rather complex. Astrobiology itself deals with so many different areas. I just threw a few of them on this slide so you can get a, you know, a feel for the breadth of what uh, astrobiologists are trying. Uh, obviously, the, the physical and chemical precursors to life, how life uh, goes through 
uh, and becomes life from non-living components? Uh, how does it develop on planets? How does it persist? What is its ultimate fate? Uh, how probable is it in our galaxy and beyond? And we also delve into the very nature of life. Um, everybody I know has a different operational definition of what life is. And I didn't even put up a slide on what life is because it is such a complicated subject and it is so many different things that no simple approach to defining life is really very satisfactory. Uh, and if you ask people what their take on uh, the definition of life is, it is highly colored by whatever disciplines we studied. So if you ask a physicist, they have a very physics-y view uh, of, of, of what life is. If you ask uh, a medical person, they have a very different view. Um, I guess we're alive, so we have some leg up on being it, so we might know it. <laughs> And this is, uh, this is a, an idea that actually has been advanced by uh, scholars like E.O. Wilson and others. Uh, he terms this biophilia, that we have a particular feeling for living things. But that's wonderful, except it doesn't really help you when you're trying to build a spacecraft to go somewhere and detect it. So astrobiology really is informed by all of these areas of science and engineering. Obviously, astronomy and the basic sciences of physics and chemistry, but also planetary geology and all of biological science goes into it. But then, of course, we have to uh, create missions to go try to look for creatures elsewhere and detect them. And this involves a great deal of aerospace engineering, uh, robotics, materials, and all of that. So anyone in astrobiology really uh, may be rooted in the sciences, but also must be aware of the tremendous amount of technological development and support that's necessary to actually enable us to do our work. Uh, last year, I was asked to give a couple of invited lectures on uh, Leonardo da Vinci and, uh, and uh, the intersection of science and art, which I'm very interested in personally. And it made me think that Leonardo da Vinci would have been a wonderful astrobiologist in a lot of ways. Probably would never have gotten any uh, projects funded because I don't think he was probably good at writing proposals. <laughs> but um, he uh, has one famous uh, uh, short uh, thought that I think really it seems very modern to us now. And it's in the box here. The principles for the development of a complete mind. Study the science of art. Study the art of science. Develop your senses, especially learn how to see, which of course is his, his art mind thinking. And realize that everything connects to everything else. And this really is the crux of the matter in astrobiology. Um, the process of life is a beautiful thing. The processes of science are, uh, have, are things of great beauty. Um, and so they have an aesthetic uh, quality as well as a scientific quality. But that ability to uh, think broadly across many fields is something that is very useful as we contemplate how we approach astrobiology. Well, astrobiology is vast. How do we even get our teeth into any part of it so that we can begin to study it in a scientifically rigorous way? 
Um, there are other paths that one can go uh, that are very tempting. Uh, one can be a science fiction writer. You can make up worlds, and you can make up aliens, and you can uh, explore it that way in, in a fictional context. But when you're exploring it in a scientific context, it's an overwhelming job, and um, we spend a lot of effort trying to figure out where are the sweet spots, where are the places that, uh, with limited resources, we can actually begin to make some inroads into how we study. The life detection is a really critical part of astrobiology. It's really what um, uh, coheres a lot of our, our uh, mission ideas together. We want to go to bodies within our own solar system that have the potential, we think, of having given rise to life or uh, giving a habitat to life sometime in their history. We used to think it was only Mars, but now we are exploring uh, intellectually the idea that there are a lot of moons around gas giants that are wonderful targets because of the interior liquid that they contain and the icy crusts that contain those liquids. Um, Andy mentioned that uh, my friend Kevin Hand is, is coming for the next one of these talks, and those kinds of bodies are Kevin's uh, passion and he will give an undoubtedly wonderful talk about those. So even within our own solar system, as we learn more about our planetary bodies and our, the moons that uh, circle a lot of them, we are broadening our view of what might actually be a home for life. What kind of life are we looking for? Well, it depends on where you are. Um, and it depends on who you are. So if you are someone interested in uh, living organisms, we are looking for indications of living systems. And we can do that in our own solar system, uh, in places like Mars and Enceladus and Europa and so forth. But we can also apply that search for uh, evidence of living um, beings of their biospheres on exoplanets. Uh, it's one of the great gifts of my life to be living uh, at a time where we know that there are other planets around other stars. That was all speculation when I was a kid. Um, you know, it was a matter of faith, really, and whether you believed that or not. And now, of course, we have this uh, amazing body of evidence and growing body of evidence for that. But if you are looking for traces of extinct life, that's probably not something that we're going to be able to easily detect uh, for the f foreseeable future uh, around exoplanets. And so uh, any examples of that are uh, going to be restricted to our own solar system. So looking for extinct life, you know, if you're a paleontologist and you work with big animals, um, uh, that's, that's a boon because you have big uh, identifiable structures like this uh, gigantic um, dinosaur bone that you see in this picture. The kinds of things that I look at and people like me look at are much less obvious. So in the other image that you see there, there is an orange deposit. This is um, orange material made out of iron oxides that is the byproduct of energy gathering uh, capabilities of certain bizarre rock inhabiting microbes. When you look at that, it's just a mineral deposit. And so it takes a lot of investigation, subtlety, hypothesis making, and testing to try to figure out if that really is uh, the result of life. 
in places like Mars, we are not really expecting to find big giant dinosaur bones. I wouldn't be sad, I'd be ecstatic if we ever did, but it's really not on my bucket list. Um, so we are you know, pushing towards trying to characterize things that are very subtle, that we have to work very hard to even understand in the earthly context, um, how much more so when we try to translate those ideas to another planet. One of the things that I, that I uh, always incorporated in when I was teaching uh, a graduate-level astrobiology course is, would we know if there had been an advanced dinosaur civilization? You know, if you read a lot of science fiction like I do, very often there are uh, settings in those stories where uh, there are uh, civilizations that have disappeared millions or billions or whatever years ago, and yet people go to those planets and they still find evidence of those. I'm saying that's bunk, <laughs> okay? I'm saying that on a dynamic planet like Earth, uh, even... Um, uh, complicated evidences of high civilization, uh, unless they're extremely extraordinary materials, which we've never uncovered on Earth, uh, are not likely to survive. And so the uh, point of that is that, you know, we're looking at incredible deep time over the four and a half billion year history of our own planet. We are also looking at that same distance of time on all of the planet's that we want to investigate in our own solar system for uh, traces or still living uh, forms of life. And so we have a time dimension that we have to deal with as well as a spatial dimension. So it boils down to something that is really incredibly challenging. And I think of it as trying to write a field guide to organisms about which you know nothing and you don't even know they exist. Uh, it's sort of like uh, imagining uh, a, um, a biologist on uh, our neighboring system of uh, uh, Alpha Centauri, for example, trying to write a field guide to the birds of Earth using spectroscopy, right? <laughs> so our tools are still quite limited. Our imaginations are lurid. But how do we bring those together to actually produce real scientific inquiry rather than science fiction. This is, this is very challenging. This cartoon is one of my favorites, and I don't know if you can see the, uh, the time uh, uh, of the copyright of this. It's 1962. So this was quite early on in the space age, and I love this cartoon because it shows that even in those early days, um, the primary notion of how difficult and different it might be to try to explore for other living things um, from first principles would be. This was already percolated out into popular culture, right? This was in the New Yorker, so it wasn't in some esoteric uh, science journal. They already nailed the issues, right? We have to figure out how organisms might be put together in a radically different environment from that that we experience here, but using the pieces of the puzzle that we, that we tease out from here. So I'm just going to hit the uh, high-level points here. This has caused us in the community to go after what we're calling biosignatures. And these are anything that might be legitimately interpreted as being derived from or caused by some sort of life process. 
We know that our dynamic environment in the atmosphere of our own planet is produced in large measure by the uh, manipulation of the chemistry of our atmosphere by life. We have an oxygen-dominated um, atmosphere that is the product of photosynthesis. We have methane that is biologically produced. But when we look at other planets across our galaxy, uh, we may find those gases that may or may not be an example of life. But if they are, then it's going to be life that is alive right now because the lifetime of those gases in an atmosphere is very short. Uh, the lifetime of an ammonia molecule produced by a microorganism in our atmosphere is something like 11 days. So uh, distinguishing biological from abiological um, uh, settings when you're looking at some of the same data is very challenging, but it is a way that we can pursue understanding uh, whether or not other such planets might have life. Things get more and more subtle as you go down my little uh, list here. If you're looking for biological molecules, you might have something that is um, planet dominating like chlorophyll. The photosynthetic pigment here on our planet is Huge. It has a clear signal from space. Um, it is the most uh, you know, abundant protein that we have on the planet, and it has you know, very characteristic uh, spectral signals and so forth. If we're lucky, we might be able to someday detect that using telescopic means. Um, but for a lot of the more subtle biological molecules that are an indicator of life, you got to be there. You've got to be looking for them. You've got to be testing for them. When we look at morphology, this is something that really is restricted to uh, being there in some fashion because biology produces structure in order for um, its life processes to be carried out, and that structure uh, can be very particular, like the dinosaur bone, where we already know how animals, uh, how vertebrate animals are put together, but it can be as subtle as that orange patch that I showed you. And so there is a great sweep of uh, latitude in trying to interpret those. And then, of course, you get more and more esoteric um, isotopic fractionation that is done by living processes and so forth. So this is the approach that many people are trying to take. Um, we could get lucky with the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. We might find intelligent creatures. And if we did, and we were able to communicate with them, we might get some clues. This would be the uh, lazy woman's way to try to uh, find out about life elsewhere in the galaxy. So uh, as, a, as a geomicrobiologist, not only would be, I be thrilled to know that we had uh, another intelligent um, uh, type of creature in our galaxy, but I'd also want to know how their, their biosphere was put together and how it ran and what, who ate who and, and all of that stuff. Um, we're not holding out for this. Uh, we hopefully, in the lifetimes of many of the people in this room, will have such a detection, but we cannot predict that. So when it was all exobiology and I was a little kid, I had a pretty different view of what I was looking for. Uh, you know, like all little kids, I loved fuzzy animals. I still do. 
I have many of them. <laughs> and uh, so my view of how he would find other creatures, of course, were these big creatures. But as I got uh, through my schooling and I discovered that uh, the conditions on our, our other planetary bodies within our solar system were quite harsh compared to what we experience here, it pushed me in the direction of microbiology. And that was because the organisms are so different from we large creatures. And the ones that uh, make my heart beat faster are the weirdest of all. They're guys that eat rock and poop out other minerals. Um, they can endure extremes of temperature and extremes of chemistry. Um, they grow, in some cases, very slowly. I have some experiments in my lab that have been going for 25 years. Uh, it's not a good way to get tenure. I have to <laughs> caution those of you who are young in the audience. It's a luxury to be able to follow things for a very long time. So what are we doing about life detection now? This is germane, and I will eventually get to the caves in a minute. Uh, what we're doing is circumstantial evidence at this point. We don't have a Star Trek tricorder that way I can just point at you and it'll tell me what you had for lunch and whether your underwear is pinching, right? Uh, that was, uh, we're, we're hoping for that someday, but at this point we are still approaching things uh, essentially by circumstantial evidence, by proxy. So we are looking for a complexity of chemistry that is similar to the chemistry out of which we know we are made, or perhaps is complex in another way. We don't know. Uh, we're still betting which one of those pathways life somewhere else might have taken. And we're looking for potentially complicated structure, both at the uh, microscopic level, perhaps even at the macroscopic level. And we're hoping that we can bring those two different kinds of evidence to bear, perhaps with other ways to detect uh, subtle and important things like uh, what is the thermodynamic state of those molecules and that structure that we see. So we're still very much in the infancy. If we were really going to have life detection, it would be something that would uh, come out and bite our ankle, right? Or we would bite it or something. Um, a lot of the properties that we associate with life as humans are big, complex behaviors. We may not have those on other planets in our own solar system. We may be always looking for microbial scale uh, organisms that may not be motile, they may not move, um, and they probably won't come out and advertise themselves to us, let alone bite us on the ankle. Um, while we're doing all this, we worry extensively about not screwing stuff up. So um, every public talk I've ever given, there's always a question, if I don't mention this in the talk, about you know, how do we know we're not you know, damaging or potentially damaging uh, the creatures that we're trying to find, and how do we know that we're not uh, potentially contaminating our home planet if we bring those materials back? And it's something that people have worried about since the very beginning. So uh, way back in the 1950s, um, the first um, formal uh, assessment of those potential hazards um, it was called planetary quarantine at the time. That was the original term. Uh, now we call it planetary protection. 
uh, in a couple of years, it'll probably be called something else, you know. <laughs> Rebranding is something that happens in science as, as well as uh, marketing. Um, but how do we handle that life? How do we recognize it? And how, very importantly, how do we protect it? But then how do we protect ourselves? The chances of a, an alien organism being deleterious to us on Earth is vanishingly small, but the risk is unacceptable because this is our only home planet, right? So this risk and benefit uh, calculus uh, about how we study these organisms, do we bring them back potentially to Earth? Do we try to study them in a space station? Do we try to study them in orbit around the planet where we find them. These are questions that are uh, considered regularly, and it's not just the United States. Um, an organization called COSPAR, which is an international organization that deals with many matters in space, has a very robust international effort to try to bring together all the spacefaring nations to come to grips with this very important um, issue. So we're finally getting to caves. Why look in the subsurface? We've got all this surface material on these bodies to look at. Well, Mars is pretty clearly not a bursting, robust biosphere. It's not green, not gooey, it's not like Earth in any way on the surface. And um, the first Viking uh, missions in the 1970s that were um, you know, developed to actually look for life on another planet went out with great hopes, and there were no green giraffes, and everybody was bummed as the dickens. So uh, that set the field back quite a bit. It wasn't until we started to discover that we had all these weird, extreme uh, environment organisms on our planet, which we didn't really know much about until after the Vikings had sailed, so to speak, and landed and had these disappointing results. We're much wiser now. Um, it was a good thing that we sent the Viking missions, I think. You have to explore when you're still naive. You can't wait until you know everything, because if you wait until you know everything, you'll never know everything because you don't explore, right? So we have to go out and be naive and make mistakes. But what is pretty clear is that in our own solar system, we have only one planet that has an obvious surface biosphere, and that's us right here. So these other bodies like Mars or these icy moons like Europa and Enceladus, if they have any kind of biosphere, it's cryptic, it's hidden, and it's in the subsurface. There's no neon sign on Enceladus that says life is here in any way. And so we have to work very hard. Well, as someone who has done a lot of cave exploration and study in caves, to me, this means that the subsurface is perhaps a more common habitat for a biosphere than the surface. It may be that if we find uh, organisms on these other bodies in our solar system, that that's typical. It may be that there are fewer planets with this planet-dominating uh, biosphere. We don't know. It's all the subject of uh, rank speculation at this point. So when you think of a cave, um, probably based on going into show caves, how many people have been in uh, caves here at some point? Yes, lots of you, right? How many people have ever been in a wild cave? Far fewer. 
But at least you have this, you know, this feel for caves as uh, these wonderful places where there are amazing rock formations and, um, and occasional weird animals and so forth. But when you really think of it from an analytical point of view and take a sort of a physics-y version of it, a cave is simply a boundary condition between surface conditions and subsurface conditions that are radically different. And energy and material can pass across that boundary condition. And that is the essence of it. It isn't whether it's made out of a particular kind of rock, or it's a particular shape, or it has um, stalagmites in it. It's really this division between the surface and the subsurface. And that is a magic division. Even when you have big entrances into caves, they are totally different systems. So this is a, a potpourri of different uh, cave types in terms of different bedrocks. Caves are made in almost every kind of rock by different mechanisms. And I don't have time to go into all the complexities of that. There are caves that are made by tectonic processes, caves that are made by dissolving rock with uh, some kind of fluid, whether it's um, you know, weak carbonic acid of rainwater coming in from above, or it's highly concentrated sulfuric acid coming from sulfur sources uh, deep within the earth. We have caves made in all those ways. We have caves made in giant thick sequences of rock salt in um, ice masses at the poles and in glaciers, just about everything you can think of, even things that aren't normally very dissolvable, like quartzite, right? It's a very refractory, hard, non-soluble uh, rock type, and yet, in the presence of biology, it can be uh, solubilized and solutional caves that are dissolved away in this refractory rock exist in um, many places in the world, most notably South America. So you can make caves in all of these different kinds of materials by at least half a dozen or maybe eight different processes. And so this gives us a palette of potentials that we can apply to other planets. Even though most caves on our planet are water dissolved in limestone. That's because we got a lot of water and we got a lot of limestone. If you're on Mars, there's not that. There's volcanic caves that are produced as a byproduct of volcanism there. So the model that we have of a typical cave on Earth is not a typical cave on another one of these bodies. This volcanic set of processes came to people's attention really very early on in the space age in the Apollo era where we were sending people to the moon and uh, uh, geologists like Jack Schmidt, who's on the, the final Apollo mission, um, they understood that what they were looking at were the remnants of processes that we see happening in Hawaii and Iceland and, and all of these volcanic settings that we have here on Earth that are making these caves that are lava tubes. Uh, back in the early 2000s, I started writing about caves on other planets, and uh, it was not well received, <laughs> I have to say. There was a lot of skepticism um, because we didn't have the evidence at the time. But as we began to get more and more visual uh, uh, data from places like Mars, we began to see things like uh, what you can see uh, the black arrows pointing to. These are um, rivulets that have been produced by volcanic activity in uh, 
making these closed tubes, and then you see this uh, string of beads that are collapse pits within that. That was our first clue that um, we were seeing significant cave uh, formations of volcanic origin on Mars. Um, they're very big compared to Earth tubes. This is uh, uh, one of the many pit craters that we see in the Martian environment. Uh, at a meeting a couple of years ago uh, on this topic, um, the consensus of folks there was that we had detected well over uh, 2,000 such features on Mars. We've now detected almost 300 such features on the moon. That was suggested first in 1969 that there would be such features, and they weren't actually confirmed with evidence until 2009. So patience is a virtue in this business. So if we look around the solar system, this is just a, a composite of a few examples on a number of different bodies. Um, obviously, the moon that I've mentioned and Mars, uh, the one in the center bottom I love because it looks like a big antlion nest, and I'm expecting a dune worm to come out of that and grab somebody, but <laughs> maybe not. Um, and um, on the very volcanically active moon Io uh, of the planet Jupiter, uh, we know from uh, reprocessing of old Venus data that there are uh, lava tube structures there. Even pit craters in the bottoms of big craters on Mercury, of all places. So the way of making uh, holes in the sub into the subsurface of a planet are legion. And this doesn't even look at the icy moons, which I want to turn to now. These are often called by people um, uh, uh, as ocean worlds, but as a caver, to me, they are liquid-filled caves that are made out of ice bedrock, okay? They are roofed systems. They are not oceans in, 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 uh, in communication with an atmosphere, and so they are enclosed systems, and I expect them to behave uh, as systems, as caves do, rather than as an open ocean does. The big holy grail, and I tried to illustrate this in this simple little diagram, of course, is the liquid water interior. This is where we're very interested in going uh, to look for life. But that is a very difficult technological feat that we are not quite up to. But if we look at uh, icy terrains on Earth, we find that there are many other uh, uh, potential habitats. And I illustrate a few of them here, like these pressure melt lenses that are called lakes. Um, hit, uh, subterranean, sub-ice lakes in Antarctica. Lake Vostok is the most famous one. Here again, I don't think of them as lakes. I think of them as fluid-filled caves in um, water ice bedrock. There are fracture cavities uh, that we see in places like Mount Rainier. I'll show you a picture of some of those. And then there's uh, clearly plume-associated activities that may be possible. We know there are plumes on Enceladus. There may be plumes on Europa. And on Earth, in Antarctica, these are associated with um, cave structures. Well, here's one now. This is in Antarctica. And you can see um, that these ice towers are associated excuse me, associated with the emission of vapor. Uh, that vapor is hydrothermal, uh, or geothermal rather, um, activity from the nearby active volcano Mount Erebus. So the geological setting is a volcanic one. The overlying ice is being um, uh, differentially warmed. 
which can certainly happen even in the absence of classical volcanism, and it is producing these subterranean caves with these diagnostic surface towers. So people are studying these kinds of environments to try to inform themselves about what we might find. So here on Earth, the caves and the mines are, really give us a window into the subsurface that is tremendously different. And this is one of my very favorite examples. This is a work of uh, uh, John and Susie Pint, colleagues of mine. Uh, Susie is Mexican. They live in Mexico, but they spend a great deal of their time in uh, uh, the Middle East, particularly in Saudi and Oman. And you can see the, the great uh, Rubal Khali there, the empty quarter. This is a um, 20-million-year-old uh, sand desert. Um, but within this terrain, there are many caves. Uh, you can see in the uh, center picture, you can see a big hole. You can see a little tiny person on the right. I guess I could point at this with the green thing. Here's a little tiny person on the right. It's rigged off, and here is a little tiny person repelling, so that is a very big entrance. Um, here is my friend Susie looking down a very tiny entrance, but in either case, you get in there and you find a totally different world. These are diverable pools with um, a whole biota and chemistry that is entirely different from each other and entirely different from the surface environment. And this is not a closed system. You can see the holes, right? But just going across that boundary condition is like going to another planet. And when we explore places underground, it is like every one of these environments is another planet because it operates as a separate system. The subsurface environment has many challenges for organisms. I mean, the obvious one is no sunlight past the, you know, the twilight zone. But they have benign co uh, conditions also. They have much higher humidity, and they have a much more stable temperature. And so organisms can benefit but they pay the price because there's not much to eat. So it acts as a refugium in some ways, but you also have to figure out a clever way to make your living. And this is why it's a place where a lot of these rock-eating, mineral-pooping guys live, who take 25 or 30 years to even show up. One of the great things about this is that um, what happens in the cave stays in the cave, right? So uh, just like Las Vegas, a lot of information doesn't get out. There's no surface weather, and so things don't get destroyed in the same way. So we can find fossil animals that are essentially mummified, that are tens or uh, maybe hundreds of thousands of years old, perfectly preserved where they drop. Uh, human remains, in fact, that some of the most remarkable anthropological discoveries have been made in caves for exactly the same reason. They are protected, uh, n protected space capsules, almost, um, that protect things that happen in them or that get into them. The minerals, the biominerals that are produced as a byproduct of microbial activity, the associated biotextures, all of these things um, are spectacularly beautiful. I just show a few of them here and I hope you can see the colors. This beautiful little copper speleothem here is uh, 
affectionately known as a hangy downy. <laughs> There's sticky uppies and hangy downies. And so this is one of the hangy downies. And it's a hangy downy that looks like it's made of mineral, and it is. But the mineral is a byproduct of the metabolism of the microbes that are packed in there. So you're looking at a microbial mineral community there that has created that extraordinary structure. Same thing with these so-called cave pearls. They are literally pearls that can be lifted from a pearl nest. They are separate, and it's the presence of microbial biofilm that keeps them from turning into an ordinary stalagmite. So the presence of biology, incredibly uh, effective at manipulating the chemistry, but even the surface physics of things that go on here. This is one of my favorite places on Earth. This is actually in the center of New Mexico. It's a, a hitherto-for sort of trashed-out cave named Fort Stanton. Um, in the early 2000s, this passage called Snowy River was found. It's now up to um, 19 kilometers of this beautiful, white, sparkling, crystalline river. And that's beautiful and wonderful, but... The biological story are these black streaks on the walls. These are organisms that eat manganese and poop out other manganese um, um, materials. And they do this apparently laughing at thermodynamics because the kinetic affinity for their enzymes for these uh, substrates that they're trying to live off uh, just doesn't make sense. We can't actually make this work theoretically, and yet they're on the walls doing it. So there, there's a lot that we don't know. Um, the biosignatures that I mentioned before, that list that I showed you of gases and molecules and stuff, uh, any one of those individually, unless it's a living organism that's biting you or a big dinosaur bone or something, you really need more than one line of evidence. You have to bring together a whole pile of different lines of evidence. Microbes do this for you in many ways. So this big, beautiful blue patch here, this is in um, uh, Sardinia, the big island off the coast of Italy. Uh, this is all the product of microbial activity. So even though the individual microbes are... Uh, microscopic. In the aggregate, they produce big signatures, um, preferably, in my uh, uh, opinion, the more colorful, the better. Um, so I love these beautiful uh, pink crystals. This is where uh, microbes in a lava tube have totally eaten out the iron mineral that was there. And so what you're seeing is the shapes of the crystals that used to be there entirely replaced by the organisms that have eaten them. So these kinds of signals are the things that get us very excited. When we look at the microscopic view with these electron micrographs, you can see all these amazing shapes. We call these tulips, we call these uh, mush puffballs, uh, we call these beads on a string. The number of different kinds of shapes of microbes in the subsurface is enormous. So the joke on the sur uh, surface organisms that microbiologists have studied for a long time is there are basically three kinds. There's spheres, there's rods, and there's spirals. And, and that's true on the surface, but it is not true in the subsurface. That's probably because they have to manipulate the microphysics of their environment. And also, there's not a lot of predators down there, so they don't have to, they don't have to be simple. They don't have to grow fast. They can uh, take their time to be 
their true selves, so to speak, without all those uh, uh, pressures of life that the poor surface microbes have to put up with. Sometimes these processes can happen very fast, so I just want to point out before I move on from the slide, this particular image here. Looks like a black stalagmite, right? This is in a mine in northern Minnesota. The mine closed on a Tuesday in March in 1962. And as happens with, Mar with uh, mine closures, the workers don't get any notice, right? It's just announced. So they threw down all their gear in disgust and stomped off. And this structure here has grown on a miner's jacket. So we know exactly when it started. And this is completely composed of these microorganisms that uh, oxidize manganese compounds that they get out of the water where the manganese compounds are below detection. They are mining uphill and able to make a large structure like this. This is probably you know, 30 centimeters or more in the course of 50-something years. There are so many that I don't have time to show you them. I just want to dazzle you with the beauty of them. These beautiful colors here are microbes. The dots on this shiny lava tube surface are microbes. Here's another one of those little blue structures I showed you before. Um, here's all kinds of butterscotch uh, dots that we love. Um, there's these gelatinous ones that um, are a byproduct of biofilm of the microorganisms. Even in the Mojave Desert in lava tube caves, where you look at stuff that looks like uh, powdered mineral, they're actually uh, minerals that are being created by microorganisms. So even the least biological looking stuff has a significant biological component. We have mystery organisms like this guy. We call it a microchoya because it looks like a choya cactus skeleton, but it's only a micrometer or less in diameter and maybe a few tens of uh, micrometers. We've been working on that for over 20 years and we don't know what they are. So I want to end with a few highlights uh, of some of my work just to give you a feel for the kinds of uh, environments that we work in. And we, we, we go to these dangerous environments not because we're wild and crazy daredevils that have nothing better to do. Um, I actually love, you know, being under a blanket with an apple and a book. <laughs> so I'm not an adrenaline junkie. But these are the places where there are these kinds of organisms that we want to find. So, for example, this cave here, um, saturated in sulfuric acid, the pH is essentially zero. Um, we have to go in, of course, with this protective gear, which is protecting us, but it's also protecting a lot of the organisms. We've been working on this system for in excess of 20 years. Um, many PhD theses have been produced as a product of that. Um, so this is an example of a chemical extreme, but at a very moderate temperature. This is a tropical system. But we find a lot of the same chemistry here in these ice caves on the top of Mount Rainier. So similar chemistry to here, but at minus three degrees centigrade. So this shows that a lot of the same chemistry 
even though the organisms are different, can occur in widely different uh, temperature regimes. On the other end of the temperature spectrum is here, the Nica Cave System in Chihuahua, Mexico. We've done two uh, National Geographic television specials on this, the giant crystal caves, um, and they're the most watched National Geographic specials in history. People love these big, crazy crystals. You can see tiny people in here. There's one now. Uh, there's one now. I think that's one, <laughs> one of us. And we're wearing these orange suits, and it looks like it's a cold environment, but it's not. We're wearing the orange suits because we're packed in ice. And we have to be packed in ice because this is so hot. 40 to 60 degrees centigrade, that's up around maybe 140 Fahrenheit. You can't handle that with just you unless you go into a spa for a couple of minutes and then come out, right, like a sauna. Uh, but trying to work in this environment, very difficult. And here again is Snowy River with this beautiful uh, structure that contains many microfossils, tells the entire story of the climate history of that cave. I want to give you a couple of uh, hints about the results that we have found that we're very excited about. We know that these crystals are probably about a half a million years old. That's not very old for crystals, but it's really old for microorganisms. And we were looking for preserved microorganisms or perhaps extractable DNA. These crystals have tiny pockets of fluid in them. They have uh, de defects in the crystals, and those defects produce holes or fluid inclusions. Well, there's one now. And they're really big as fluid inclusions go. That's like a cubic centimeter or more. So that's big and juicy, and it's got a lot of stuff in it. And our colleague from Italy, Paolo Forti, sent us some preliminary uh, electron micrographs and said, do you think these are fossil microbes? And I'm like, oh, yes. We've seen things very much like that before. When we got there, we found that there were living microbes uh, sticking out from all those orange walls. And the walls are alive with these highly... Uh, shape variable organisms uh, that are entirely new to science, probably a new microbial domain. Uh, they're very hard to work with. Their genetics is very opaque, shall we say. And then we found, oh, oops, then we found that in here, we not only had preserved organisms like this, uh, but we actually had live organisms. And when we calculated how deep, into, uh, how deep into these crystals we were sampling, it's pretty clear to us that we think we're looking at organisms that have been trapped in there from between 10 and 50,000 years. Well, that's not millions, but it's still a darn long time. What are they doing in there? Are they twiddling their thumbs? Are they growing? Are they just hanging out? They weren't dormant. So we can't say, oh gosh, they were just in a dormant form. They were not. They had active DNA. We stained them for ATP, you know, which is the energy molecule that we all have in us. They just weren't doing a whole lot, and they were hanging out. We don't understand this. We're just reporting it. And it's these kinds of instances that make us think that there's a lot that we need to know. These are the universal lessons that we think we've learned after maybe 30 years of doing this cave work, in my case. Some of my colleagues much longer. 
metal oxidation that gives you energy. And when you do that, you produce a biosignature that is quite distinctive. Uh, biofilms and mats, you know, that's what you brush off your teeth every day, right? It's the biofilm that grows overnight or pond scum or whatever. A lot of the biomats in these environments are minerals, but with a whole lot of microbes in them, and the microbes have caused those minerals. A lot of these guys don't do a lot. They're really tiny. They're tinier than surface microbes, or the ones that I would get off your teeth if I swabbed them right now. They are very, very small. Why not? They can be. And yet, they are still independently living creatures. They grow very slowly. They're weird shapes. And they mobilize geological materials by the billions of tons. So they are a major subsurface weathering factor. As we stand here now, whatever the bedrock is underneath our feet, and I'm not sure what that is, is full of fractures, and each one of those fractures has microorganisms that are busy working on the rock. It is a very busy place underneath the surface, tiny and busy in a way that is often opaque to us. So we translate this to missions to other worlds. It's really critical to evolve this kind of science with the capabilities to actually look for it. So the engineering and the science absolutely must grow together. The science has to take into account what can we do with our engineering. And the engineering has to take into account how can it help the scientists get the most bang for the buck in terms of the science. And this is a very hard thing to do because Scientists and engineers are trained very differently. In many cases, they attract different personalities of people. So it's a sociological exercise in working together. In our cave work, we're already dealing with sensitive alien biology. I talked a little bit uh, about that microchoia. Here's a few more examples. We've been working on this forever. We find these guys in the subsurface, but not on the surface, in every kind of cave, in every kind of bedrock, in every kind of temperature all over the world. We don't know what they are. And this is after 20 years of work. So I think of them as a template for aliens. These are the aliens underneath our feet right here. And imagining how we do this kind of work robotically, how we do it in other planets, you can see the magnitude of the challenge. And yet, it's a challenge worth stepping up to. Well, in order to step up to it, uh, it's not going to be solved in my lifetime. I'm sad to say, but I'm a grown-up now, and I can accept that. <laughs> Although I still cling to a blue, fuzzy alien pet, but I'm probably never going to get one. So one of the things that we have to... Uh, change our way of thinking about is how do we create a science that is inherently going to be maybe many generations before we have answers? I mean, that's true of all sciences in some way, but not quite in the in-your-face way that astrobiology is, or even SETI. So it's very important for us to uh, uh, train our young folks to reach out to our fellow citizens and explain uh, why this is so compelling. It doesn't really take a lot of explanation for most people. The search for life elsewhere in the universe is something that we 
that really resonates with most people, um, with their philosophy, with their interest in, in how we came to be, how life in general comes to be. So it's very important that we push forward. And I just want to uh, end with one final um, slide uh, that really you know, brings it into focus. This is one of our uh, colleagues that we lost. Um, he was with us on uh, the 2009 National Geographic Expedition. He was a wonderful um, Mexican caver and explorer. And he was lost the following year. But he would not have traded anything that he did for the exploration that he conducted. And so the stakes are high, the risks are potentially high for humans, the risks to our spacecraft, even if they're unmanned, are high, and yet the enterprise itself is such a uh, magnificent effort that it's worth our spending our lives in it, it's worth public support uh, as uh, an important thing that we should be doing as a species and as a nation. And so I leave you with that thought that uh, it's an amazing field and stay tuned because new uh, discoveries are happening all the time, both here on Earth and hopefully very soon on other planets. Thank you. There are some speculations that on different planets, life may not be carbon-based, but silicon-based, or maybe amino acids would be different from the ones on the Earth. So I would like to hear your opinion about that, and also slightly uh, different uh, twist to this question. If uh, caves on the Earth are like a different planet, maybe we can find those in the caves in, on the Earth? Mm -hmm. So um, the issue of different chemistries that you might be able to make life out of is something that's really an active area of research. It's not easy to do because we're informed by what we're made out of, right? So we kind of get that. And the issue is how do we tease out universal properties of life that aren't necessarily tied to a particular chemistry? That's very hard for us to do. There are a number of suggestions. Um, there is a paper that just appeared last week looking at a new set of uh, synthetic alternative DNAs, uh, you know, base, different bases from what our DNA is made out of. There are potentially different ways of making protein-like structures out of carbon. Of course, the, the sort of classic science fiction-y way of doing it is to invoke something radically different, like uh, silicon as the basic elemental building block. There's a potential for that. There are many problems with it. Uh, the, the silanes, which is the chemical group that are usually pointed to, are quite analogous to uh, carbon compounds with some really significant differences, and that is that most of them don't have a gas phase. So if you notice, a lot of the uh, elements that uh, our kind of life is made out of has a solid form, there are many soluble or uh, liquid forms of them, and there are many gas forms of them. So that's helped us be able to move uh, 
energy through our system and get rid of waste products and so forth, you would have to imagine a very different kind of life made out of silica, where the waste products would be solid. We don't know how, to, how life would do that, but maybe you could. So I think the trick is to keep an open mind that isn't too open, if you know what I mean, right? Um, we want to be able to recognize extraordinary, strange manifestations of life when we see it. But on the other hand, we also have to build from what we know. So it's, it's a balancing act about how much attention we pay to the kind of chemistry that we know produced life here and how we apportion uh, ways of looking for alternative chemistries. Um, as far as life in uh, caves on other planets, I think Mars is a potential site for that. Uh, the shallow caves that are made out of uh, uh, volcanic, uh, made by volcanic processes, uh, may not be deep enough to have preserved uh, a habitat for life. But uh, the reason I even started caving in the first place was publishing a paper way back in 1992 suggesting that the last best place to look for life on Mars would be in the subsurface. That's actually what got me into caving. I was not a recreational caver. But that subsurface environment of Mars is clearly radically different from the surface. It may have a positive geothermal heat flow, uh, we now know with every mission that um, has gone, we found more and more evidence of subsurface frozen uh, water. And it may be that there is a sweet spot where there is liquid water below. And so there may be caves with no entrances, um, voids, vugs as they're called on Earth, uh, that may be habitats for life. So we don't know. Uh, we are trying to figure out how to figure that out. Drilling is not easy. Um, even here on Earth, and drilling on another planet is even more complicated. So, we'll see. Um, left, please. You just answered one of my questions already. Is I'm going to ask, what would you rather do on Enceladus or Europa? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Certainly. What would you do with Enceladus or Europa? Would you rather dig through the ice, or would you rather be by one of the vent holes? And from what you've seen on Earth, would you say, oh, yes, these vents actually can have some microbes, or now you really need to dig down, which is the better bet? Well, I think that, um, you know, uh, you take what nature gives you. <laughs> and frankly, Enceladus is going, here, take my vapor plumes, you know? So I think that it would be foolish not to start with the low-hanging fruit. Do I think that there are going to be uh, microbes in those vapor plumes? I don't know. Um, I think it's probably unlikely. Um, I would love to send uh, probes, sensors, whatever, into the fractures in Enceladus. If it turns out that the European uh, plumes are true as well, then that would be another place to look. We don't have as good evidence for that. Europa, though, also may have some of the features that I showed in that little diagram, that is, much more near-surface potential habitats. Um, so I really want to get into fractures because that would give partial um, protection against the extreme radiation environment that we have at Jupiter and Saturn. The big gas giants are so um, 
radiation-rich environments that the surface is going to be highly altered and highly affected by that, whereas further down in the fractures, that may be a refugium uh, for uh, at least keeping life from being structurally destroyed, even if it comes from deeper, uh, if it came from a, a deeper oceanic interior um, and got cast away, so to speak, through geological processes, we still wouldn't want it cooked to fragments, you know, on the surface. Sure. Yeah, please. Um, where would you get of the options in the solar system? Where would you guess we've got the highest probability of finding life? Oh gosh. <laughs> uh, well, I want to look everywhere simultaneously. <laughs> I think that there's a, a fairly high probability in the icy moons. The problem is they're so darn difficult to get to. You know, the, the cost of just getting to the outer solar system, even if you were just sending a brick, is, you know, billions, right? Uh, so uh, they're very difficult to investigate. And they've got tens of kilometers of ice hiding their secrets. So it's possible that Mars is an easier target. Is Mars a more promising target? I don't know. I hope so, because I've written a lot of darn papers on it, and I sure would like to be proven right, but I may not be. <laughs> and the use of Ks as a place to put um, bases on these yes. various terrestrial worlds, you know, to protect them from the radiation from the sun and all that, right. micrometeorites. I was curious, this is maybe kind of a wild question, but... Is there any evidence that, has anybody looked into the idea that maybe there are caves that we could, are airtight enough that we could seal them and put an, and pump an atmosphere into them? Well, I spent about a half a million dollars of NASA's money looking at that in the early 2000s. We had a, um, a project funded by this amazing, wonderful organization within NASA called the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program. Um, and um, we looked at both the science of uh, Martian lava tubes, but we also looked at them as potential habitat. And we developed a suite of uh, simplest possible technologies that you could use. So we came up with the idea of inflatable baggies, basically, that you could inflate, and they would push up against the complex topology of the inside of a cave, <coughs> Excuse me, and then you could secondarily rigidify that. So I'm a big fan. Um, the air tightness of rock masses can be quite high, although there's clearly a leak rate. But it doesn't take a lot to seal them. And um, so the scheme we came up with is <coughs> excuse me, probably the simplest way to do it. But it would not take a lot to actually make them uh, quite, um, quite sealed. I don't think you would be okay just... Um, you know, pumping air into the bare rock because epoxy there's... epoxy to seal the cracks? And what? Use an epoxy to seal the cracks? Or... I guess you could. Uh, the idea... Uh, I, I, have, uh, I have issues with epoxy myself. <laughs> and the thought of doing it in, um, you know, one-third G and six millibars of atmospheric pressure, I think, could be really challenging. Uh, but it's possible. And when I say rigidifying agents, I mean, um, our view was that the baggie that you would inflate 
would be fine for a while, but you'd want to make it a more permanent structure. And we were thinking, you know, just like the kind of stuff that you uh, shoot into your walls, like this rigidifying foam uh, that you use. So maybe some epoxy-like material could be that. Um, I think there's a, a lot of ways to, to seal a cave for uh, making it into a pressure vessel. So, uh, yay team. <laughs> and for the moon, too. So <laughs> we're going back to the moon. So I was struck by how you described the um, uh, organisms in caves that have a little competition, and therefore they're able to patiently go about their very long lives. Would that be um, a limiting factor on any competition in terms of evolution, and should we just assume that because of this environment that we shouldn't see much more complexity that would be caused by evolution, or are you modeling that, and is that a con condition you're considering? You know, when I, when I was first going to uh, do some work on these organisms in caves back in the early 90s, when I first paid attention to the fact that there were organisms in caves, which heretofore hadn't really been reported, um, I expected to find a really reduced biodiversity. I had this analogy in my mind of a desert, you know, with a, a suppressed biodiversity. And it turned out that it was absolutely the reverse, that the biodiversity in the subsurface is um, wildly, flamboyantly excessive. And upon, you know, many years of reflection about why that would be, I think it's because on the surface, you have so many transport mechanisms that facilitate gene flow. In the subsurface, you are partitioned by geological uh, layers and structures, and things don't get around. So each pocket of life has the ability to develop and evolve, even if it's evolving slowly, but in a very different direction. But there's more to it than that that we don't understand, and that is, in a given cave, I might take a... Uh, you know, a sample for genetic analysis here, and a few centimeters away, I'll take another one, and maybe there's only 20% overlap. And that story is repeated all over the cave, and maybe the cave is 100 miles long. So the diversity is not just between caves, it's within a cave. And exactly what is driving that tremendous biodiversity is still a mystery to us. We're still hypothesizing how you can have that. Uh, it was so counterintuitive to us that at first we thought we were making errors. But now we have 25 years of doing this with you know, ever more sophisticated ways of uh, genomics and proteomics and all of this stuff. That variability is actually there. It's, a, it's an evolutionary surprise, I think. Yeah, two sure. more. Two more, so over here. Hello. Uh, so thinking of possible uh, extreme conditions or cases for finding strange life forms, I wonder about your opinion on two possibilities. One is uh, really deep underground. Like um, I read recently that in the 70s, the Soviet Union dug a deep hole in the Kola Peninsula that went to 7.5 miles. And they found some kind of microorganisms down to like sure. uh, six kilometers, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. 
So I wonder if you think it would be interesting to dig deeper or in other places and what kind of things we could find. And the other thing was, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with this uh, novel by Michael Crichton, I believe. With what? And the, uh, a novel by Michael Crichton, the writer. Oh, yes, yes. The Andromeda yes. Strain. <laughs> right. <laughs> In which, as you know, he postulates the possibility of a life form based on crystalline structures. Right. This, yes. Could be. We, you know, we, we just don't know. And it depends on what you mean by life. I mean, for me, I have a pretty physics-y view of it. Uh, it has to temporarily cheat thermodynamics and create uh, much lower entropy inside. It does that at the expense of gaining energy, and it has boundary conditions. So I have a pretty simple list. If it does that, I don't care what it's made out of. Uh, other people are more fussy than I am. Um, the organisms that are the deepest that we know of uh, in the South African gold mines so far, and they're extending them even deeper, so that's in excess of four and a half kilometers. The problem that you run into is that on a planet with a 1G uh, gravitational field like we have, at some point, the lithostatic pressure of the rock itself um, compresses the rock at great depth to the point where there's no living space. You can't support caves, you know, down at 10 miles, right, uh, in a 1G field. Now, if you had a much smaller planet, you could probably have voids down much further because you would have a lower gravitational constant. Um, so it really depends on the, the particularities of the, of the planet itself. Uh, we certainly know that we've got organisms down to this 4.8 kilometer level now. I suspect they go a little bit further, but I think it, much beyond that, we start running out of just physical space. Yeah. This the rock is too dense. Just to finish. I'm sure you... Let's, let's move to the other okay. Uh, <clears throat> a few years ago, there were reports that organisms on Earth living in a very arsenic-rich environment might actually have DNA with the phosphorus molecules replaced by arsenic. Oh, yes. Whatever happened to that idea? Uh, well, it was uh, not a legitimate report, unfortunately. Uh. It was uh, an interesting experiment. Uh, it was poorly controlled, and it was unfortunately um, misinterpreted, perhaps, by the investigators. So, yes, indeed, arsenic was uh, taken up into the DNA because they were running a system with a complete absence of phosphorus. Mm. But there was a uh, claim that the DNA was still functional, and that appears to not be the case. So could one imagine a type of DNA evolving on a metal-rich world that had a lot of arsenic that might have that substituting for phosphorus? I guess you could imagine it. Um, so far, we haven't really discovered that here. We have known for many years, at least 20 years, that there are organisms that make their living oxidizing arsenic minerals. Mm. To me, those are real arsenic life, but that was you know, something that we knew about uh, from the work of Ken Nielsen, um, who did a lot of work with NASA. He's retired now, but one of my favorite people. And, uh, and so he discovered that type of arsenic life that lives off arsenic, uh, but this substitution of arsenic in the DNA 
does not appear to be the case.